0: Now. hello there and welcome to episode 96 of right where you're sitting now i uh once again went to the mauve zone and uh discovered a a a, a called out a creature from the abyss
1: um, i didn't think you were going to finish that um like the, the, i'm not sure if it's a compliment but <laughs> i'm not quite sure exactly what that is but uh, anyways yes i, I don't think you were going to be able to get there but uh, yes. i got there i got there eventually well, i'm here, well, I'm, I'm here and <laughs> yeah. that's definitely true so. so joining me is
0: mr mark satir hello yes. hello and <laughs> how have you been sir
1: oh fine perfectly fine
0: yeah, so you've only it's only been one episode that you haven't been on if you don't include the Move Zone the actual podcast that we've just launched um, and thanks to everyone for listening to that, that was, that's was that gone very well I'm very uh, you know I'm very pleased that the this new show is doing particularly well um, and it's I think some people think it's a weekly show it's not we're going to do the Move Zone probably once a month because of the uh, commitments of the other co-hosts and uh, you know it's more of a kind of maybe think of it more as like a digest of what's uh, been in the in the kind of public consciousness that month, um, whereas Sitting Now is, is a weekly show, and uh, that show must go on, Mark. And uh, But talking about Sitting Now, um, before we get into what we're going to be talking about um, this week, we are launching a Patreon soon, and the idea behind that is, I keep getting asked to do more content, and I need, you know, some sort of way of affording to do that content and also you know it will be nice to engage with people a bit more so this allows us the opportunity to kind of uh, open up and engage with our audience a lot more so we're starting a patreon scene there will be extra episodes that are exclusive to the patreon um maybe not forever exclusive to the patreon but for a a period of time there will be exclusive to the patreon and we're starting a discord in fact we already have a discord it's just private at the moment um and also, we'll be doing things like early access to shows and that kind of thing. And when the videos start, you know, the uh, more uh, YouTube-specific content starts coming out, um, you'll get early access to that as well. And we might start doing some sort of live for the Patreons, you know, uh, you know, where they can kind of interact with the guests or, you know, um, you know, ask questions that we can ask the guests. Or we're still sort of figuring out the. Uh, fine details but that is coming soon within the next few weeks so we will be launching the patreon and i will let you know when that is available anyway what are we talking about this week mr Satir?
1: well uh, uh the Christina Ward, who has her roots in thorough house and is involved with the process press at the moment is uh, written holy food how cults communes and religious movements influence what we eat and uh, so we haven't done a cookbook before but we have now and this <laughs> podcast is good enough to eat
0: oh there we go the puns the puns mm. yeah we've got puns we didn't get enough puns in really did we in the... we
1: didn't but yeah. uh, well I mean uh, yeah well we, we're yes exactly we didn't but uh, there's a feast uh, awaiting uh, everybody uh, if they continue on this uh, line and um, like I say uh, there's lots of titles apparently coming out from process so um we're looking forward to them i, I believe that the they were saying that, that it's a it's a nod to the process church is that right
0: i think so yeah it was uh, i think process is the um, more i think she was saying feral house has a kind of reputation so it will uh, get kind of shunned in some ways by certain outlets so they've started a different uh, an imprint of, of, of feral which is meant for more um you know to it won't immediately get stigmatized by the uh the feral house logo well yeah. i
1: mean that's an interesting thing because i mean for some people uh, the, you know that that feral press i mean that's that, the that's that, the opposite that's way the here, whole, yeah. That's the, yeah exactly <laughs> i mean the the acocalypse uh culture publications i mean was the they were deeply influential uh, with many people including myself mm-hmm. and I, I would like to say actually i mean i i can thank them for giving me my first proper full um, introduction to Jack Parsons yeah so uh, and, and you know that whetted my appetite in all sorts of different ways
0: yeah oh, there so, we are there's another pun i have just coming oh, there you go. I can't stop myself
1: <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah no it's definitely it's an interesting topic because w- when you first look at it you think food you know it's not like the most obvious um, you know it's not the most um, obvious yeah. thing that we, you'd expect on our show but actually it turns out that yeah not only is the the author very well versed in, in our you know landscape as it were but she's also uh yeah. written a very interesting book that you know it's full of it's full of high strangeness and yeah, yeah, strange yeah. cults and it's it's you know it's actually a fantastic book so you know um we'll we'll have a chat with her now and, and
1: marginalized uh, world views and yeah, cultures yeah, too, and yeah. often have like you know those influences and then and then but then approaching them in these you know kind of um Unique ways, kooky ways—I suppose you could say—that uh, that's always and it opens up new avenues of interest. I think.
0: Yeah, definitely. So let's uh, go over to Christina Ward, and we'll see you after the after the interview. Hello, Christina Ward. Thank you so much for joining us. Could you give us a brief biography of yourself, please?
2: Absolutely, thanks for having me. My name is Christina Ward and I am an editor and the vice president co-runner of Feral House Publishing. Um, I've been working with Feral House for a very long time And since Adam's passing in 2018, um, I've been kind of running the outfit with Adam's sister, Jessica. I'm also a writer and food historian from Wisconsin in um, the United States. People may recognize that as from Harley Davidson and Happy Days. (laughs) And my new book is called Holy Food. And it's about the influence of cults and communes and all the crazy new religious movements in the United States and how it influenced what we eat.
0: That's, yeah, that really took my attention when I saw that. I was like, that's a really different concept. <laughs> i have never, never seen it before. So I was like, yeah. oh, yeah, we'll get get her on straight away. That sounds really good. <laughs> you haven't
1: had a cookbook before. And it's no, what, yeah, you, can, you can actually eat your way through the book as well. So, yeah. You know.
2: You can. I the idea too. You know, to talk about these things. And I'm always the person if I'm in in the bar with someone and someone asks a question or says something, and I'm like, wait a second. There's a story behind that. There's a reason. Nothing happens in a vacuum. And so I'm always the person who wants to say, let's look deeper. Let's find out why. And especially in American food culture, there's a lot of that crazy religious influence. And um, that while you know other countries have exported their in religious stuff it's only in the united states does it really kind of go squiff and take different directions and become what we know and love as a modern cults and weirdo
0: cults mm. so let's talk a little bit about feral house because obviously it's yes. a hugely influential publishing company and especially in the sort of the world we kind of occupy with sitting now it's it, feral house was one of the publishers you know there was like disinfo uh, Feral House, you know, there's a bunch, but the Feral House mm-hmm. always stuck out. I think those two in particular, Disinfo and Feral House were the two quite, you know, Richard Metzger and Adam Parfrey were two kind of quite important figures. Could you talk a little bit about Adam, actually, and kind of like give us a little bit of kind of his story, I suppose, because obviously, sadly, he's not here with us anymore.
2: Yeah, sadly. And um, you'll probably get a straighter story from me than from Adam. He was notoriously <laughs> curmudgeonly and i like to think I'm less crabby. Um, so adam started as many of us did as just one being interested in like the darker corners of culture and he started really as a writer and in journalism and had a regular column where he was in um, based in the san diego reader which was a weekly newspaper in southern california and really wrote about. And spoke about the I, kind of the the outsider culture, uh, and that's really where he was always interested in growing up. He grew up in Hollywood. His dad was a, a character actor, and so had this exposure of just the, the artifice in culture of you know what we think is not always what we really believe and what we see, and so he was interested. And there were so many of us during that time. Kind of that's the outshoot of like post punk rock, you know, seventies, eighties. As you you kind to learn to look behind the covers a little bit and that's what adam started doing um so there's great profiles of just weird characters and going deeper into like outsider ideas uh apocalypse culture was published in 1989 and that's the first official feral house title he had been working with Stuart swayze from Amok press um and they published a version of um kind of apocalypse culture, but the definitive one was published by us in in 89. And that was a collection. And for many people, their first introduction, again, pre-internet days of these outsider ideas, the ideas that we would now call conspiracy theories. And I think that there's also a break in this evolution of what we think conspiracies are and many times again you have to think pre-internet days is what we called conspiracy theories legitimately were there was an active you know movement by culture and government to hide some of the darker areas of their research and of their doings and Farrell house was very much committed to exposing that and bringing these ideas about alternate realities uh, to the forefront
0: it was definitely a. Um, we were talking about this with Alan Greenfield last week. Actually, there was a, a definite, and I've spoken about it in, a, in earlier episodes. But um, I'd be interested to hear your take on it as well. It feels like there was a a, a real sort of split in conspiracy theory, at, at, um, sort of around nine eleven. Before prior to nine eleven, it felt more like a sort of subculture, um, like a kind of uh, I don't know what you call it. It was kind of almost okay to be a conspiracy theorist. It was a bit kooky. It was, a, but it felt a lot more kind of left wing a lot more kind of um it was like a rebellion kind of thing almost whereas now it feels much more like it's a very dark thing um it's much more connected to i mean like the q thing we were talking about before the interview that it, it all kind of and it seems to sort of have mainstreamified and I, I don't know it's kind of it's hard to explain what i'm trying to say really but do you sort of see what i, I, mean,
2: I mean i see exactly what you mean and i've been talking about this in you know just in general to uh people, whether they want to hear it or not. Uh, (laughs) The idea is when something goes mainstream and I can talk about conspiracy theory and we can talk about even like religion, when something goes mainstream, it goes in either in two directions. It becomes either more extreme or it becomes really smoothed out and gentle. In the case of um, the kind of conspiracy culture, it it went darker. And that is, you know, I'm going to be really honest. I think it's because especially Americans, we're just dumber. We're just, you know, we can go into the reasons why the decimation of public education Education, um, it, just the overt religiosity is about anti information. Feral House is always about getting more information out there and letting people discover and decide for themselves. And Yet that change, as you point out, is, you know, around 9-11, computers sure did a lot and internet did a lot where there was no sense of discernment anymore. It, I think because the information became so much easier to access, no one was actually looking a little further. They were taking it on the surface. And that paired with 9-11, and because uh, people were so stupid, they had no idea of actual history of how geopolitics works and how the government actually works. That they couldn't see how that thing could have happened in any legitimate environment that they lived in. And so they looked to conspiracies to help answer those questions, but without having any sense of intelligence or discernment. Like as a subculture, you know, sure, there were some ding dongs who put forward some pretty ridiculous ideas and believed them. But for the most part, I like to think that most of the people that were following and being interested in conspiracy culture were doing it for amusement or or legitimate researching to find out some some interesting and real answers to questions and that that's what changed and i agree with you a hundred percent
0: yeah it's strange i mean i'm, I'm cause i grew up reading people like jim keith and um uh even listening you know listening with a a bit of a you know terror to people like uh, William Cooper and all these kind of you know I'm showing my age a bit here but um, but yeah even even William Cooper who is you could say is a kind of proto Alex Jones in some ways um, absolutely um, even he didn't feel massively dark even though he sort of did go that way a bit towards the end especially but um, even he it, there was still a kind of subcultural side to what he was doing he he wasn't a threat to anything really. I mean, not really. I mean, he was um, there's a whole interest in history of him, but it's, yeah, but it's 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 completely flipped and changed now, where it feels like, yeah, it's a, it's, it's almost sad, you know, it's, it, it, in a way
2: <laughs> there's actually a psychological term for it. It's called the hedonic treadmill. And so it especially with like internet culture, is that you get so much positive reinforcement when you go along. With what that you know group is believing, and as we look to like relationships and communities, and so especially the QAnon situation, is people were able to build a community around this just madness, and they got it continually reaffirmed. And so Alex Jones did that too. It, what's the the kind of phrase the kids say? It's you know he got high on his own supply. Um, and he kept getting more and more attention and more positive reinforcement the crazier he got and the more outrageous the claims were and that just fueled uh because again people we lack discernment and intelligence and they people get trapped on that hedonic treadmill and they just keep getting it and it's something with any kind of cult belief it's it's my here's my pet theory is that most of these groups are about taking they believe an illogical premise and then they take that illogical premise to its logical extreme, and of course, you're going to get just an absolute terrible outcome. It could be terribly humorous, or it could be really dark and 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 really awful. Um, but that's what it is. You take, you know, if you follow the illogical thread, and it's going to go somewhere illogical.
1: Mm. Yeah, it's true. It seemed to have, um, that 9/11. They also seemed to have a big impact on the up to that point the satanic panic narrative. It was very well defined. And it seemed to, oh, well, we looked like we were due for another one. At that point, it sort of flipped over. It was like, oh, well, you know, here's something really to worry about. <laughs> and then, it, it, the, you know, all the Geraldo programs, they were no longer interesting.
2: Yeah, they were. I I, it, I think it's really interesting because, um, and what I think you're absolutely right, too, in talking about like kind of the resurgence of this satanic panic. It's always I think it's much easier for people to get their heads wrapped around. And I'm kind of kind of talking about like the normies. Um, It's easier for them to get their head wrapped around something abstract, like a conspiracy, like a small cabal, a small group of people having this outsized control over their lives and outcome, because to admit that, you know, there's one there's a few bad actors or just the system in and of itself disempowers people that's a real kind of demoralizing miserable existence to think about you have very little control over your life so people like to ascribe it to you know satanic things things that are outside of their control
0: and what's interesting is now because of the internet they've found groups like order of nine angles and these kind of actual satanic groups that are kind of you know um well sort of actual satanic groups but um depends i'm sort of looking into those guys at the moment they're a bit weird to say the least but um yeah but now they can actually like go okay well there's the satanists and and so and then you you worry that actually these satanists aren't
1: you know anything to do anything to do with that at it's, all it's, it's often the bogeyman du jour isn't it mm. it's like oh well it's, oh, absolutely. The, it's the jews it's the freemasons it's like or well, the mm. illuminati what well, are the illuminati well it's not it's nothing to do with the historical illuminati you know, the, the, if we talk to people about it, they've never even heard of them. They don't, they don't have concept of it. It's just like this bogey, it's nebulous bogeyman, and it, it's uh, whoever they are. It's it's just like this uh, shadowy thing, and it, and you project your around- own anxieties
2: yeah absolutely it's much easier to to blame a bogeyman or a bad actor perceived bad actor or a crazy idea than it is to kind of look within yourself and analyze your own um bad choices and limitations Mm
0: -hmm. yeah i mean i got some grief from our listeners for saying this but i i always think that conspiracy and um religions kind of serve a similar function whereas you know religion kind of explains away the chaos of the world and it's God's will, whereas conspiracy theory explains away the chaos of the world because it was the Illuminati or it was the, you know, it's a simplistic, you know, metaphor, whatever, but it's a... It's a
2: simplistic metaphor, but I agree 100%. It is. In (laughs) all of my research, it is. It's people are looking for, um, again, that that replacement, Uh, you know, whether, again, you know, if you're going to reject God, then you've got to create a substitute. Uh, So... And then that's what people do and to, to varying degrees, right It's always on a spectrum.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. Okay, so what made you write a book about food? Uh, and and conspiracies, and hello, cat. (laughs) This is Ed.
2: Um, So, again, you can see as we have our conversation about early Feral House and my personal interest is that, so I'm I'm well-versed in this world, and it's always very interesting to me. Um, My other interest is food. Uh, You know, I work as a, um, doing food historian work. Um, I'm also, this is so funny and archaic, Um, But Adam, again, loved it. And I actually wrote a book. My first book was on food preservation. I'm what's called the master food preserver for my area. That means I'm trained. So if you're jams and jellies and pickles, I am the person people call. And... It's something I grew up with on my grandparents' rural farm in Wisconsin, uh, the the interest in kind of that food and the history of food. And so they intertwined a bit, um, this idea of food history and knowing that these cults and these communes and these like kind of outsider movements had an outsized influence on american food culture and for very specific reasons and i felt i wanted to tell that story instead of um again boring people at the bar by just saying wait wait let me tell you about little debbie's
1: Mm.
0: and you you kind of made it america-centric for obvious reasons because this book would be enormous otherwise
1: (laughs) (laughs) and it looks like there's a lot there's a big history to be told there with food and and you know minority sort of perspectives and how they kind of they they. They often come up with some like you know ideas which are picked out and then become very you know incorporated into the mainstream. We've with, unconsciously like, without us realising and so I was surprised I, I, cornflakes aren't mentioned. Kellogg's he had I think he invented cornflakes to prevent people from masturbating originally. He it's did. Never had that effect he, on me. I can't say. But <laughs> uh, well, uh,
2: you know, don't eat the frosted flakes. They, that makes <laughs> you <do it> more. <laughs> i'm sorry i'm working blue i hope that doesn't offend anyone oh, no. <laughs> <laughs>
1: um
2: so part of the, I, <laughs> it, it's, the, the kellogg story is fair i thought fairly well known and i really wanted to do that intertwined uh, between the, the history of those religious groups and the food because one of the things that came through in the research is how interconnected all these groups were and not just from interconnected by shared beliefs but interconnected from personal relationships. You know, this guy knew that lady, this guy knew that guy, He, this guy was a, an acolyte or student of this one and then branched off and formed his own group. That happens throughout the history of American um, kind of new religious movements.
1: Yeah, you're talking about communities and families and cultures. I mean, that all segues in, doesn't it? And it does. That, that's like the golden thread running through those, those narratives.
0: And my uh, my former employer will be very happy that you're using. I used to work for uh, Eileen Barker at Inform in um, LSE in London, and she uh, coined the phrase "new religious movement." Um, (laughs) So she'll be very happy to hear someone in America using (laughs) using that phrase. Oh,
2: (laughs) I love that phrase because you know, especially it it became important uh, to me um, as a definition because, again, all these kind of outsider to mainstream groups, they're on a spectrum. I mean, it's the difference between, you know, the, we're talking about some of the dark ones. And if I think about two groups that believe in the Book of Urantia, and I'm sure, you know, your listeners are familiar with uh, Urantia, in the Book of Urantia, is if you look, so Heaven's Gate followed the Book of Urantia. That is a very dark outcome. Um, and the Unarians with Uriel um, follow the Book of Urantia. And again, Heaven's Gate, obviously, as most people know, they ended up, you know, committing mass suicide. Whereas the. Um Uranians following Uriel, they just do arts and crafts. <laughs> so, again, they both kind of believe similar things and have sourced it from a similar place. Uh, whereas I would look at um, the Unarians as very much a new religious movement and the Heaven's Gate as a cult. And there's great, I'm sure have you, you're familiar, you may be familiar with Stephen Hassan, who is the ex Mooney who developed the Bite model for kind of assessing that spectrum of cult beliefs
0: i think he did that with eileen actually um eileen barker yeah. she made her name um she wrote a academic research study on the moonies um and she, yeah. uh she was kind of made her a, a name in the academic world i suppose but yeah it was uh yeah no the moonies are a really interesting group <laughs>
2: They are. And so I think, Steve, that white model works really well about trying to assess, is it a new religious movement? Is it a cult? And really, the difference is about high control. So if it's a high control group that is controlling you know, bodily autonomy, is controlling the information you receive, um, is controlling your, um, your, your, what you can feel. You know that kind of perennial gaslighting and controls what you think so the more elements of that are hit on the bite model the more high control the group is and the more high control a group is the more likely to get bad outcomes
1: a certain type of person makes for a certain type of christianity or a certain type of atheism or a certain type of humanism or a certain type of whatever isn't it it's it's ultimately goes yeah back absolutely
2: to that. It does. And so that's where um, in, in talking about that in food and where the food really comes in when we think about control, food control. So that's controlling bodily autonomy. If so, there's a group that's telling you what you can eat, what you can't eat, when you can eat it, who you can eat it with, where you can eat it. That is definitely high control.
0: Mm-hmm yeah no it's definitely interesting so the the thing i like about your book is you kind of almost summarize religion at the beginning don't you (laughs) or kind of at least like um the major religions and how they sort of um kind of came into the united states essentially don't you i mean that's that's the first section of the book really um
2: it is yeah I, I had i felt i really had to do that again you know we we're talking earlier people are dumb not my readers <laughs> not people who follow pharaoh house not for people who listen to the your show um but you know there's a lot of americans especially and i keep talking about americans because it's really about the american food culture um who don't know the history of the religion and that's to their own detriment. There are people, and you'll see this, especially we were talking earlier about evangelical Christianity, fundamentalist Christianity. Some of the, the, again, it's a low information group. They control how much information can be received. There's a lot of controls um, on that. So folks don't know where there's overlap in beliefs. They don't know the history of their own religions
1: yeah i mean evangelical i mean the ones a few i know and actually i I must say i do actually really um, uh, value listening to points of view that i don't agree with and i don't like or i don't i find difficult to sympathize with i find that really valuable so if they're listening (laughs) just make that point but um yeah my very much so the the perspective is my religion slash culture is is religion and everything else from I don't know the Mormons, you know. If I'm an evangelical Christian, right, the Mormons are a bad, you know, they're bad. They're a cult, therefore, or even like even the ancient world, like you know, the, the cult of Dionysus. You know, it's like mm-hmm. a cult. Well, it's a it, well, it, that well, it was a cult, but it, it didn't have that connotation at all at the time. It's a minority belief. It's a it's a strand of belief in in part of something else. It's like a big tree with lots of branches on it. So yeah, as as the opening of the book in the early food. You know, shows very well that that smorgasbord is life and well in America, isn't
2: it? And so, and and that's my other problem. I will, and, and I, I've infected you guys, is I work in all my food puns, and so, yeah. uh, oh, oh, so be-
1: yeah, that's that's don't worry, that is just a, <laughs> that's <laughs> to yeah. hold your horses. There's because there's going to be a whole load of those coming, don't worry, <laughs> <I? laughs> poor, oh, bad God. puns.
0: it's it's interesting because from an international perspective i mean i know differently because i know a lot of americans and i've been to america a lot um the international perspective of america seems to be that america is a very evangelical country and it's like dominated by evangelical christianity but it kind of isn't really is it i mean it's that there is a lot of Stuff going on religious religiously speaking, in, in the- it,
2: it, it isn't it isn't and so it, you know it all comes from the founding, um, and people tend to forget we we celebrate in the states the idea of like the pilgrims the puritans right landing at Mayflower Mayflower landing at Plymouth Rock those were religious extremists fundamentalist Protestants that got thrown out of England, um, sent to Amsterdam, which was like the kind of center of any kind of liberal thought, and then even got kicked out of Holland and then came to the United States. Most of the United States in those earliest times were settled by religious extremists. Our roots are in that evangelical fundamentalism. Um, And that comes not just from UK based Protestants, but also German. The German Protestant movement, all the pietists and the perfectionists and all of those kind of odd strains that is the root of the United States. And so that's why it always appears that um we have this protestant strain this fundamentalist overlaid over all of our culture because it is
0: yeah i suppose i I was always struck actually when i first came to america like how many tv channels you had that seemed to be dedicated to evangelicalism (laughs) actually it was kind of like okay there's some Uh, of it here then yeah there's a guy i can't remember there was a meme of one particular guy um he's uh one of the guys that gets up on stage on tv and knocks people over with the power of christ but he was the covid 19 i banish you i can't remember his name now um well, uh, the there's
1: many, so maybe.
2: many that's why i can't put my finger on any of them yeah that's the shame there's so many yeah yeah it's... Well,
1: we, we've had the reformation so we, we well we, actually we even inherited it but so <laughs> you should have it as well but you, it sounds like some parts of the world benefit from it again and it's well, it's more in... evident maybe in our in our system of things and, and, and i wonder if we're a bit more softer on um we have an affection for the kind of nonconformist because they don't you know they tend to be eccentrics that you know deemed eccentrics rather than you know terrorists
2: <laughs> i think you you've got something there i mean where in english culture i think eccentrism, you know to to you know, a varying degree is both tolerated and encouraged. It's always kind of nominally, you know, saying every every community, every you know neighborhood has like kind of the the neighborhood weirdo. Here in the states, we're less tolerant of that, um, and th- there is a weird tribalism in the United States, and that goes to you know community and affinity, and so everyone is looking to identify: Are you with us or are you against us? And a lot of these group affiliations, i.e., you know, joining a church, joining a religious group, helps kind of shortcut all of that work that someone would need to do to assess are you with me or are you against me?
0: Yeah. Well, one thing I found really interesting in the book was how you kind of showed these kind of more disparate groups, like smaller groups, uh, religious groups, um, sort of founding groups almost, and how like some certain kind of food traditions seem to sort of swim between different i think sin eaters was one i found really fascinating because that sort of starts in wales didn't it over here and then it sort of manifested in different um kind of types of religion almost didn't it but it's how do you think that happens how does it kind of sort of move between these groups like that it's kind of
2: and yeah and that that's the interconnectivity and oftentimes what happens as um groups kind of break off and, and a sec um and then you know start a new group, is that someone is a member of that group. They're a believer until they get so to, to a certain point. Um, either the, the leader or the leadership says something they disagree with so much, or they have the new revelation and they break off and then start their own group. And that's a lot where they'll, so they'll take, you know, 80%. Of where what that person whoever they were following said, and then add on a new twenty percent, and that keeps going and keeps. So you get groups. My my favorite, you know, as if you have a favorite kind of weird theme that's influenced so many of the groups. If we think about the, the lost tribes theory, all so many groups in that. And again, it started in in um, the UK. This idea that the, it was the British who were the true lost tribes of Israel. And it became something that was very popular by the late 1800s. There were, you know, thousands and thousands of people in leadership positions, you know, the high middle class in in England who believed that they were the true Jews. And that idea got exported to the United States. And took root in just crazy different ways. And so the Lost Tribes theory just manifested. And it it went to the Mormons believing there that the Lost Tribes, the um, it then morphed to the Black Israelites, uh, the Nuwabians, even the Nation of Islam believes that they're part of the Lost Tribes in some way. So again, it just takes like this one idea. Um, and then all, uh, different people and groups latch onto it, and then it spreads around and morphs in different ways.
1: Yeah, I suppose yeah, I mean, also as well, it's got that uh, the, the the biblical notion of the lost tribes. I Suppose there's something in that narrative about uh, you're part of this divine plan, and it's something you can refer back to the Bible. when you know, like um, Blake had this idea of like uh, of the gospel Jesus coming to England you know, and on those hills and, you know, in the Jerusalem thing. I mean, that's about here in England in the front of the tin mines and all this. There's a whole narrative there, which probably isn't not got much historical substance to it. But I suppose it's making it very immediate somehow.
2: Right. I mean, think back to Holy Blood, Holy Grail, you know, um, which, again, puts forward that idea the the Marin. Um, Merovingians and that the Holy Grail isn't uh, the cup of Christ, but the blood of Christ, you know, the escaped pregnant Virgin Mary um, or no, not the Virgin Mary, the, the Christ's wife and oftentimes Mary Magdalene who again escapes to France and then escapes to England. And so, you know, there's folks who still believe that there's groups uh, and it gets um, married to the Illuminati and the Rosicrucians in some way that there is the Descendants of Christ um, alive and walking around today, and that seems you know so quaint and banal compared to some of the outrageous conspiracy conspiracy theories of today. Um, but you know, it wasn't that long ago that those guys published Holy Blood, Holy Grail. And you, you think in the span of time, it's only been like forty some years, and just to think about how that's taken off and morphed in such different ways.
0: And then Dan Brown ripped it off.
2: <laughs> oh, it's such. I just I wish they would have won that case when they sued. Uh, they should have won.
0: Yeah, I think they lost on the grounds that because they claimed it was historical fact, you can't copyright historical fact. I think that's right, isn't it? Yeah, there's one. There's yeah, one that,
1: that... yeah, there was one chap as well. whose name I'm trying to remember. He wrote an episode of Doctor Who, so no. I should remember this. <laughs> Doctor, and, Doctor and the Bumble Snowman. So that's that's probably the most important thing he ever did. And then the uh, but he 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 actually was. He said. And he did some excellent. You can they're still on YouTube somewhere. The um, excellent uh, documentaries from no, like 1974 on the Holy Blood and the Holy Grail. What came between known as known as the Priory scion Sion and all that. Stuff. Mm. And um, he his view was he didn't want to get involved in the, the court case at all. He, he said, "Look, good luck to them. They're actually they're actually doing us a favour because our books have really shot up since <laughs> since this." And and he so so he had a very different approach to the whole thing. Um, which I, I'm far more sympathetic to say. Uh, that makes a lot more sense. The Doctor Who ex- business aside.
2: <laughs> I think that's actually a really good point. And it kind of goes back to what we we're talking about that different, like, what's a conspiracy? What's honest research? You can be a historical researcher chasing down a rabbit hole of just strangeness. And that's fine. So your documentation becomes like, okay, here's how this mythology, here's how this story developed over a thousand years and legitimately document that. Um, and then there's the folks that then take it and further and believe and true. That's the, I think the real difference is that difference between, are, do you have a level of discernment and skepticism as you're researching and thinking looking at these things or are you just a true believer
1: yeah he wasn't he, he wasn't a zealot from what the impression i get from interviews and so on yeah he was he, he had a sense of authenticity about him he believed there was something in this definitely but at the same time he was he, he, was, he, he wasn't dogmatic and i could question and say oh no i'm not so sure about that now and so on and uh, which is what the real life is real, real world is like isn't it
2: Absolutely, but you know, you know how it is. A lot of people prefer to live in fantasy worlds. It's much easier than existing on uh, the material plane.
1: Well, a a zealot isn't somebody who who believes too much. A zealot is somebody who does not believe enough, (laughs) and that's true. (laughs) And disbelief as well. Mm -hmm. A zealot is somebody. uh, These evangelical atheists and so on. They they can also be, you know, similar. They can be very similar. that's a
2: fantastic way to put it I, I
1: yes thank you for that <laughs> there you go um
0: so with I'm trying to figure out a way of um, phrasing this question so how does um, how does the sort of food aspect of religion start to drip into America I guess like what what was where's, where's the first the first case of it happening of, of a religious food in you know, kind of in you know case in America I guess through Christianity but um, possibly before that
2: So it it morphs over time and people bring and religion influences the culture, culture influences the religion. So the same goes religion influences the food, culture influences the food. So the first instances are from the mainstream, this idea of feasting and fasting. Um, And so the American Thanksgiving holiday is a Protestant religious feast um, after fasting. And so that is, you know, the start start what happens is these groups start to look at the scripture as the bible uh, in any number of places in the bible for inspiration because it becomes a tribal identifier we are the people that don't eat xyz and that goes back to again even further to leviticus um and we think about the cash root food rules in the, the you know people of the book and so don't eat pork don't eat shellfish it's a great way To one, keep your group safe, Um, again, um, pre-antibiotic eras, is pork was filled with parasites. So there is some legitimate, oftentimes, legitimate food reason to institute a rule, Um, but then also it marries to some sort of interpretation of a scripture. So you see a lot of vegetarianisms based on the Edenic covenant about who has mastery over the planet. And it goes back to, and it's funny because that's interpreted different ways, either eat everything or don't eat very much at all. Um, And then it's influenced um, by the specificity of culture. So it goes back to, so the early German communes, those very strict religious groups in the US, we still have them. We still have Amish enclaves um, and those come, and it, in, it's funny, in the US you'll hear them referred to as Pennsylvania Dutch, they're not Dutch, that's Deutsch German. So these are the German separatist, pietist, very strict fundamentalist, but the cuisine's very German. And so, what you see is a lot of feasting, fasting, and then the culture influencing that food. It comes really when you get to the late, later in the 19th century, that uh, post, you know, 1840s, is you'll see a lot more vegetarianism come in. And again, it's all based on interpreting a line or two from the Bible.
1: Yeah. I mean, uh, I think Herodotus in the history says that the the Jews believe that uh, the plague came from pork, and if you live in a very hot part of the world where you don't have access to a fridge freezer. You know, pork corrupts very quickly. You know, seafood corrupts very quickly. It makes perfect sense. It makes perfect sense. Then maybe not so much now. And it takes on that sort of cultural meaning. It's more of a cultural thing.
2: It, yeah, it does. It's all interconnected. It's very, it's very difficult um, to separate the two out. And as you said, you know, my background in food preservation, I recognize those rules exactly for what they were. Is again, the tribal identification and food safety um, beyond just the the quick pace of a pathogenic infestation in hot climates. Again, the pork itself, trichinosis, and within the meat of the animal itself is, is a pork is suspect to a lot of parasitic um, infestation.
1: And I suppose the modern examples of that are, are very evident. I mean, vegetarianism. You know, there's an ideology behind that, isn't there? Absolutely. And um, people have various degrees of humour involved in, the, in their, <laughs> their approach to their vegetarianism. Especially Brighton, especially yeah, yeah. and (laughs) and and veganism. There's like a kind of evangelical kind of hardcore sort of vegans, and then there's there's like other vegans (laughs) which are which are good human and whatever and uh, more human about it actually. But uh,
2: And, and I think it comes from where they're getting that inspiration. Why are they doing it? And then in, in the United States, it's funny that even if someone who claims not to have any kind of religious inclination following an extreme diet, that then itself becomes almost a religious experience. Again, for the same reasons: community, tribalism, you know, rigid belief systems, and where it gets to like the vegetarianism in different ways. Um, it, you know, God gave you the earth and the, to take care of. And again, there's a lot of groups that interpret that as we can eat everything. Many groups interpret that as we should only eat the plants. Um, and as well as the health, if we think about diet you know, what people were eating in like that mid to late 1800s, it's a lot of stodge. It's it's a diet that is not great for, that's how we put this, um, for your gastrointestinal system. And so, which is, and I kind of go into this a little bit of the book. So if you're eating that very meat heavy, very starch heavy diet with an emphasis on getting as many calories as you can in, because you're working very hard labor, whether in, in agriculture or in a factory, You know, that's one thing, but you're also going to be very constipated. So if you look at the religious culture and you look at what people are eating, at the same time, there is like an explosion of cottage industry in purgatives and laxatives and maintaining your bowel health. And it is that later that idea of, um, and it comes a lot of it in that uh, mid 1800s about your body as a temple, you need to take care of it, that trend towards vegetarianism as also then as a health movement to um make your body function regular and keep that clean temple you get this emphasis on purity and so it becomes a purity of thought and mind meaning then also your body must be pure
0: it's fascinating actually because i do a weird diet myself i do the keto diet and um i started watching a lot of youtubers that you know make their their careers from pardon me They make their careers from uh, discussing and, you know, doing recipes or whatever. But, um, and I, I started watching, I sort of, you know, started watching some of those and then I started to see these other videos pop up about, you know, like veganism and, and you can go quite extreme with diets. But one thing I've noticed is, again, it feels like religions have sort of infested, infested the kind of the health food industry, haven't they? It really does feel oh. like... They're there big time, aren't they? <laughs> so, yeah, you-
2: absolutely. From the get go. Mm-hmm. And that is one of those. So I'm going to asterisk one thing you said and go back to it. Um, but we talk about the Seventh-day Adventists. in a lot of times in the States, they're not even th- thought of as that extreme anymore. Time tends to mellow out. Either goes more extreme. or or kind of smooths out the rough edges. So the SDA and a lot of groups at that time, that's when they started publishing cookbooks and starting these food companies um, and having that outsized influence, especially on the health food industry, because for a lot, say it's the late 1800s and someone's telling you to eat soy, or, eat, you know, essentially what's Tempa, eat nut loaf. And you're like, what the hell is that? And so you'd have to publish a cookbook or, or make it easy for your new converts to follow the diet that you recommend. And so the same thing we were talking earlier about Kellogg's. And so that idea of this Graham crackers and this very bland corn cereal, all of these things purported to be healthy. And so these groups then, and again, with American tax law that allows all these religious groups to start businesses and not have to really pay taxes. Again, a little bit more complex than that, but just on a high level. So it really was able to get these health foods into the American grocery stores, into people's hands, these cookbooks into people's hands. And that's that convergence. and so, especially the kind of more extreme diets. Uh, my asterisk to come in with, it's something that new that's happening with people adopting a keto diet, which again, has its roots specifically in health. I'm not sure if you're familiar with some yeah, of the early it's with, history. Um, was-
0: people that have uh, epileptic fits, Epilepsy, it? Yeah, right.
2: Yeah. Exactly. It, it, using that high protein, high fat diet helps control epilepsy. It then was um, as a byproduct, people discovered they'd lose weight. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was got adopted as a as a weight control diet, and some people, every not everybody's the same. So some bodies function better on that high protein diet. What's been interesting is following is the Odinists, the neo Nazi Odinists um, in this like proto pagan type religion have adopted the all so keto but now keto to an extreme oh the carnivore which is like diet a, yeah the carnivore <laughs> right the raw diet um and again oh. so taking Ill- illogical concept illogical concept to an illogical re- extreme
0: I, there's one of these guys i watch um this is a bit of an aside so I don't, I don't know if you've heard of this have you heard of high meat before no oh okay right so this is crazy so one of the guys i watch he because i'm i'm a filmmaker so i watch um camera channels as well on YouTube and he, this guy he has a camera channel and a health channel. And so I was watching, I, I accidentally switched over to one of his health videos and um, he's quite funny, so I watched it, but he starts eating this thing called high meat. And w- what it is, is it's meat that you deliberately let go off. So you, it's raw meat, you, put, you store it in a jar and he was in Thailand at the time, I think. <clears throat> so he's just leaving it out on his balcony and then for a month or so, and then eating it. So it was almost like fermented meat.
1: It's, it's, yes. we, I mean, in, in England, there's a, you have gamey meat, don't yeah, you? Yeah, but have, this like... is extreme though. I mean, okay. But yeah. it's not that far removed f- from it. But uh, yeah, yeah. I, I mean, maybe that is, maybe that is, but I can see, you know. The, eating it raw as well. Yeah, game, yeah. You don't, you don't, you don't cook it. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah I, I mean. don't yeah. fancy that idea. <laughs>
2: yeah. so, this is, I was just talking to a friend. Um, she was from England this past weekend. She was telling, we were talking about things and she remembers and have, remembers her father telling her about, um, um, similar, it's called. They used to call it fly meat. You know, you could go to the butcher and you know ask, and only certain butchers did it. And it's the same thing it, that meat was again. You know, warning to listeners: this gets a little gross. Is meat that was allowed to be infested um, with maggots, and it was theoretically added to a fermentation to you know um, this idea that it added flavor. There's a famous Italian cheese that essentially is maggoty. There is. People will eat anything, Um, and there's a lot of things that, depending on the culture you grew up in, you'll turn your nose at, at. and this becomes, again, the culture influences the religion, influences the food, and it's just a stew, goes back and forth. Um, But yeah, the whole high meat thing. But again, people will also go to a very expensive um, steakhouse and order a dry-aged steak, Mm
0: -hmm. right? What does that
2: mean? It, it's an age it's a it's allowed to ferment
0: mm, yeah so it's, it's yeah. really bizarre but i mean this same guy um because I, I sort of found it. i immediately started to spot little markers because you know obviously i'm interested in this world As it and you know, i was like hang on a minute and he would started to um introduce things like orgone purple plates and things like that like <laughs> these strange like purple metallic things that you wore and it sort of somehow drew positive energy to you and i thought oh hang on a minute he's really gone down the rabbit hole so i thought okay so this is interesting i want to see if i can find other people like this and there's a whole group network of them and they're all into the health and they all seem to switch around what diets they're doing all the time and they all seem to follow these same kind of like like strange uh, esoteric belief systems but i'm but what I'm really kind of interested in finding is where where does it end where's the root almost or like where's is there a kind of you know another hand at play almost <laughs> do you see what I mean there like is. yeah yeah
2: there is. I'm so excited. So, <laughs> so, so, Oregon, and that comes from William Reich, yeah. right? So the Reichian stuff. But it goes back to Germany to like mid again the, the 1800s. People just lost their minds um, here and here in the United States as well as in Europe, uh, and so the, it was the rise of the nature mention movement. This idea, it was. Um, essentially a reaction to the industrial culture, the industrialization of Europe, Um, you know, bad health in the factories, bad air, burning coal, back to nature. And so there wasn't a singularity of a person. It was a kind of a general larger cultural movement where with certain actors then taking things to certain extremes. So uh, some of the main players out of that, you get the German fasting movement, you get, um, you know, Alfred Erhut, you get, um, William Reich, you get this idea of um, Rudolf Steiner and, and um, biodynamic farming, biodynamic wines. So um, and then also macrobiotics comes out of that nature mention movement. Also, some of those nature boys come to the United States and are instrumental to starting some of what we know now as the Southern California health food cults mm-hmm. um, in the early 1900s up to the mid 1900s. So again, it's all interrelated and still um, has offshoots today. And yeah. again, it's always on a spectrum.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, I mean, I work in mental health, and one of the five ways to well-being is is being exposed to nature. Mm. There is, there is, is, you know, going for yeah. a walk in the park, going for a walk in the woods, uh, you know, not being cooped up in your in your flat or just at the factory. So, mm. but, you know, yeah. it's come right round again. And, then, and there's obviously some, at the, at the core, there's obviously something there of value.
2: And, and that's a, the root of a lot of both the extreme food religious beliefs, is it starts with a germ of a good idea often, and then just kind of snowballs into the very illogical bad ideas. Um, And I think, and again, that comes that hedonic treadmill, that idea of if this is good, then what's the next step? And it becomes then what if, the whole what if, what next, what next? a lot of these groups then tend to that escalation. I'm thinking of one of the, the more extreme crazy groups is Adi Dam with Adi Da, who is like just a goofball character. But by the end from kind of then cherry picking all of these elements of Buddhism, Hinduism, the, the nature mentioned, the extreme diet, eventually gets himself to a place where he's a breatharian. Mm-hmm. So where you don't need food whatsoever and you drink, you know, one green smoothie, like a kale smoothie per day. Maybe, um, and then just fast for at length. You know. So again, that's a terrible idea. That's a terrible yeah. idea at its core. Nobody can survive on nothing.
0: Well, that's yeah, that's but- another example of a religious thing that's kind of come into the mainstream, in especially in America and over here as well. Which is fasting. Fasting's become a, yeah. a kind of a fad now, hasn't it? It's, a, um you know, you have people like Joe Rogan talking about it, and you know, all these kind of. Uh, more mainstream kind of people do it you know in, intermittent fasting is the big one at the moment isn't it and uh, yeah yeah but it's kind of interesting how you know it may, really made me think about that in the book i was like oh yeah i hadn't really thought about that, that that's kind of a, a religious practice that's now being adopted as like a a part of a, a healthy diet or essentially
1: i suppose these ideas <laughs> that they, they sort of run away with people you know like we were saying a certain type of person makes for a certain type of whatever it might be and um, you know I think in many of these cases there is an authentic experience there's a revelation however you want to explain that there Mm. but then it's integrating it into everyday life and and sometimes the, it, it, the people don't have that stability it sort of sends them off into some you know knocks them to for five and i can understand that they have these experiences whatever they are and then in then trying to integrate that into everyday life is sometimes not as easy as is it is it, it's, it's possible it
2: it is, and then if we think about like the modern Western diet, which is you know filled with chemicals and processed food, and you know it, you know um, I haven't been in the UK for a while, but you know in the states for sure, if you're if you're out to eat somewhere at a restaurant, most restaurants that unless you're they're super high end kind of you know fancy gourmet stuff. Um, it's about getting a trough of food. Mm -hmm. So culturally, we have trained ourselves in American culture and Western culture to eat way too much. We're just over consuming um, and the quality of our food is fairly low. So when someone takes on so maybe a legitimate fasting, intermittent fasting, and they feel feel healthier. Um, they lose a little weight, maybe. Um, that's a positive reinforcement. So now that positive reinforcement for the practice, um, it means they're going to continue the practice and then maybe share the practice. I mean, we do it all the time. We're such a superficial kind of people. Is if you see someone who you know is physically manifesting a beautiful carcass, we're going to ask them, "How did you get that?" what did you do and you know we're we're pretty susceptible to trying ridiculous things in the in the uh service of being beautiful and healthy
0: yeah it's interesting talking about youtubers actually uh, and uh, they come up in your book it's the yellow deli cafe um yes have you seen there's a youtuber at the moment called reckless ben who is uh, his his whole channel is infiltrating cults and exposing them and in a quite com- comedic ways, I suppose. But he's done Scientology. Um, and, but he uh, infiltrated the Yellow Deli Cafe recently, and there's like a six part series. He he goes he has glasses with a fake camera with a you know hidden camera in them, and um, it, it's quite amusing. But you should you should have a look at him. He's a, <laughs> he's an interesting guy. But, uh, I've heard
2: of him before, but I haven't watched it. I, you know, and and that's it's something that in in my own research and it's um I had to to make choices about cutting off oh, like yeah, where yeah. where how much you're going to find there's and so how much you're going to look.
0: <laughs> yes, there's yeah.
2: so much, there's so much out there, and there's there's people doing like really spectacular work in kind of doing that expose and debunking, and I'm so grateful for them. I do think there needs to be a little bit more education and awareness to how the extremes of these group goes. My only my only attempt, um, and I did interview a lot of people in uh, the g- modern groups, but my uh, approach was much more kind of genial, um, genial And I wanted, cause I did want them to share information and I wanted them. So my approach was very calm. My one attempt to actually go and visit a cult during their, th- doing their thing, um, did not end well. I w- there was a group, a uh, Ramtha in Wisconsin, where I am about 200 miles away. And I, I figured I'd drive and go see them and just kind of show up and during one of their meetings and knock on the door. Um, And I did go. And, and again, I'll you know, send you the links to them. They're, they're fairly extreme, been accused of, of murder mm. um, and high control. Um, but it's a lot. The members are a lot of um, old hippies. Um, when I walked on to the property, I got about 20 feet in. And then I was met with a couple old hippies with shotguns and uh, politely asked to leave. Mm. And I tried to stall for a minute saying, I just want to ask you about your food. What do you guys eat? <laughs> and <laughs> They weren't having it.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? A lot of these kind of um, kind of hippie front-facing hippie groups kind of turn out to be quite violent, and
1: uh, (laughs) they seem to yeah, they go bad. They They, go bad, don't they? That's what they say. I don't know if Charles Manson had a a cookbook, but. (laughs) <laughs> That's an idea, isn't it? I mean, uh, the what's excellent about the holy the holy food book is you can actually make the food yourself. You can do it at home, and then you can have the experience of eating it and and sharing it with others. So it's it's not it's not just a reading experience. It's it's actually you know it's it's something you can actually it's more, I mean, more it, yeah. kinetic, isn't it? It's more tangible.
2: And and thank you for saying and, and that is actually one of the reasons I wanted to include recipes because it's one thing to just read about the groups, what they ate and would believe. But if you cook something that this is something that they liked and they ate and then you you, you know, again, personal taste varies, but you say like, oh that's kind of delicious. I could see where, you know, working all day on your commune and then spending two hours being told all your faults and getting punished for correcting them, but then you get a nice meal that you didn't have to cook. Um, there's some compelling elements about that. And then it goes to um, food is an attractant. So many of these groups, um, especially 20th century groups, offered free meals. Uh, so if you're young and if you're hungry, or you're lazy. Um, we can, you know, fill off some of Maslow's hierarchy of needs. If you can get a free meal, why not? It might be worth listening to a group's spiel if you get a free meal that that tastes pretty good.
1: In England, we have the Salvation Army, and there's like a, there's an ongoing joke about singing for your supper. You have to sing the hymns, and then you get fed. And um, but yeah, it's it's there, isn't it? And uh, uh, Mahmoud always had the the, uh, the uh, mosques, you know, fresh water you know, in a in a place where that's a, a very valuable thing, you know, you can understand how that would take root in that part of the world.
2: Yeah, and and we think about the influence of, you know, Hindu is always, if you speak to to, to people who believe and practice, is is a terrible kind of um, neologism was that was invented, but for our sake we'll call it Hinduism. Um the in many of the Hindu traditions, sharing a meal is part of the religious practice. It's prosedum. It is you offer you know cook the food with with reverence and intention, offer it to the god, and um, and then it becomes holy. and And part of that is then sharing it with the community. And many of these modern groups, um, modern meaning you know post you know twentieth century, have adopted that idea. And then it morphs a little bit. Um, if we think in the Sikh tradition of langar, um, which is again is the free open meal that gets adopted. Um, you know, in many of the groups, so we think about the Hare Krishna tradition. Many of the Hare Krishna tradition is about sharing that meal, and again, acted as, as an attractant and developed a very distinct food culture. So much so, then developed restaurants. So there's still, still a number of restaurants. The Hare's were a little different in that sense is that they didn't often directly own those restaurants, but they they encouraged their believers and members of the group to start their own restaurants and food companies. So if you see a restaurant anywhere named Govinda's, it's most likely to, um, related to the Hare's.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we've got one here, we've got one here in Brighton. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, there's a, uh, I was kind of interested in, um, Bhagwan Rajneesh, he was an interesting kind of character. He seems, I mean, there's very food, an obvious food-related thing with him, isn't there? I mean... Uh, there <laughs> the, is, a yeah. couple different
2: ways. Yeah. So it, it, many folks um, really became reacquainted with the Rajneeshis um, after watching that uh, very long, overly long mini-series. Oh, the Netflix um, thing, um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Netflix, like Wild, Wild Country. Um, that's my beef with all of these very long miniseries. series They kind of pro- prolonged to get the eyeballs on for the, the ratings. Um, the story in again, coming to the United States out of a Hindu tradition, and he was established in the ashrams um, in, in India and Pune uh, and then brought it to the United States. That comes, you know, we have a, we can blame the hippies for a lot. Um, and that's one of those things. A lot of Americans and Britishers were going to that part of the world on what was called that kind of drug trail, right? So you get a little bit of spiritualism, and you get a lot of drugs. And so you had a lot of Westerners visiting different ashrams and bringing those ideas back to England and to the United States. Um, then later, some of these self-styled gurus said, well, let's cut out that middleman and come to the US ourselves. And that's very much what Bhagwan Rajneesh did and brought this kind of syncretic, it's not a true like Hinduism or Sikhism or any kind of thing. It's a, this amalgam of just worship me essentially. Uh, so he started restaurants and there, there are still Osho and he changed his name later to Osho, Osho restaurants in, still in India and in Nepal. But when he came over and accrued um, followers, you know that's the other thing with the food part. If you're going to sustain a very large cult, new religious movement, you need a revenue stream. And so that's why a lot of these groups started food businesses because it was a great way to do it and you could make a lot of money. Part of that is because of how the tax code in the United States is set up. If your believers are working in your food business or your your um, restaurant and that's part of their religious mission, you don't have to pay them. And so if everything is communally owned, too, the only the all the revenue goes back to the church. And so, starting these restaurants, so it was, they formed. Um, they were a revenue source, and they were an attractant to other new believers. And so, Rajnishis particularly had a lot of restaurants that they started, um, especially when they went to the Rancho Rajnish, um, which was the first, the sixty-five thousand acre farm um, ranch that they bought in um, Eastern
0: Oregon. Yeah, and then that kind of went south a bit didn't it
2: <laughs> it did it did because for a few reasons so it, it, again u.s law um it, what and everybody knows that uh, that one of the second in command to to B- Bhagwan rajneesh was sheila ma and sheila ma and her husband who was an american who was knowledgeable about real estate, they made a grand mistake when they bought the antelope Ranch, the Rancho Rajneesh, is they didn't look at the zoning laws. Um, They bought it with the idea of forming a commune and pulling everybody to this one location. The zoning laws were agricultural, which meant that you could not, you can only have so many people on an, uh, for per zoning because it gets into sanitation. It gets to, when you're in these remote areas, there's no sewage. There's no like modern piping out for your poop. And so that's why you have these zoning laws. You can't put 5,000 people on a patch of land without some sort of sanitary system. What are you gonna do? Just dig latrine pits? That's what they did um, as a start. So that is where the conflict started, moving people in. Um, They also, in the earliest days, um, and I've got the label, I made some t-shirts and bags up, because they started farming, uh, and it was called um, the Buddha Fields. And they were selling, they were farming, and they were selling produce at the farmer's markets in Portland and in the area, and supplying their restaurants, you know, fresh from the Buddha Fields. and where we're alluding to the dark side is as that pitched battle, because it was rooted in that zoning law, is one of the ways many groups, the Mormons tried to do this too in the 1800s when they were, when they got burned out, literally burned out from the different cities, is when you have a group with thousands of followers and you bring them to a place, especially a small town, you register them all to vote And then you get to write the laws and the codes exactly how you want them. And that's what the Rajneeshis were trying to do and that is where that pitched battle came from it was not religiously inspired at all it all came down to cheap politics and zoning laws
0: <laughs> it's interesting isn't it how certain kind of we'll use the phrase again like hindu what's the there's a, a better name for it isn't there um is it san mat or no, no hang on well,
2: yeah the Sanmat tradition yeah. is that um that idea of um kind of reverence for a teacher for a guru, and that's yeah. where the yeah. So the guru, and then so when you get to Western culture, you know that thing blows up. And again, once it comes to the United States or come to comes to the West, it it a lot of times these groups lose their core tenets of the religious practice and becomes a, something new, becomes a, an entirely new religious practice. To go back to like the Rajneeshis and that idea, so people were actually worshiping Bhagwan Rajneesh um, as as a guru, as a god. Um, and then Sheila Ma's great idea uh, to resolve her issue with the town boards was to kill everyone. Um, and they tried to poison everyone with salmonella, a food-borne uh, pathogen, by taking it to a number of the area restaurants. And um, it was the eighties and it was the great trend in restaurants was the salad bar, all you can eat salad bar. And so they were they were seeding salad bars with salmonella
0: yeah it's, it's a unique way of trying to deal with a problem wasn't it i think at the time it, it was, was. Yeah, it was
2: and it, it, you know the, the joke is as, as someone who's expert in food preservation i i had long made the running joke that that was the great you know the agatha christie killing that has never happened yet as someone you're trying to kill somebody with a bad jar of of jelly because <laughs> you could you could theoretically
0: when it comes to like ufo cults in america what is the kind of current status of of those guys are they uh, how many of them are still around at the moment because they used to be a, like i mean the mount shasta area i remember there were a lot of uh, ufo cults back in the day but uh, how many of them still exist to this day
2: Oh, so many. And it's getting adopted by more and more. And it's great. It goes back to almost, um, again, it goes back to, to English um, Victorian era science. So you had a lot of these upper class twits um, who were like kind of self-taught, rich aristic, aristocratic guys who, you know, pursued these ideas and would come up with these theories. Uh, a lot of it came from Madagascar uh, and this idea of a land bridge, that there was once a land bridge. And then that got um, kind of this idea then there was also a lost continent and the lost continent was the home for um, space aliens that no, they're not really aliens, they're gods. And so these gods lived on Lemuria, i.e you know, Madagascar. And so then Madame Blavatsky and the theosophists kind of adopt this and marry it to some Buddhist ideas and Hindu ideas. And this is where it ramps up. And these ideas come then to the United States to Mount Shasta. And that's the Blavatsky. So the theosophists have a um, a headquarters there. And so the modern UFO cults come a, a little bit from, seeded from all of that belief that there is giants Bigfoots, there is um, essentially the seeds of humans uh, living uh, and that were seeded by aliens. And so a lot of the UFL cults are not just about aliens as, um, you know, almost alien is Jesus. They're coming as redeemers. They are like the the God, the father. They are also coming back to the redeem us because they came to give us our humanity and give us the knowledge very much like almost like a, you know, uh, the founding myth of you know, the tree of knowledge—they gave us the knowledge, and they're coming back to get it.
1: <laughs> yeah, you had like a and the you know, in the, and mm. the arians and they're very sort of angelic in nature, aren't they? I mean, also as well. I mean, I'm I'm, I'm very not influenced by Jung, but I'm affected by Jung very deeply. And the, the, you can—he he was very interested. I mean, you write a whole book about the whole UFO. From a, a very, he's very Pacific perspective, and you can see these archetypes sort of, you know, I think they're, they're, these, this is why these stories essentially are still with us, and we'll still be telling them in the future, is because there's something archetypal about the those narratives, and they, they resonate with people.
2: Absolutely. You're absolutely correct um in in kind of bringing up Jungian. There these are about archetypes and people seeking out. It goes back to what we're talking. They're seeking out tribal, they're seeking out an answer, they're seeking a reason. Um human existence can be pretty miserable if, you know, you don't have a sense of self and and if you're looking for Um, a reason on why we're even here. Uh, That's where, again, the religious beliefs and some of the the squiffy ones, the ones that are a little more outsider, um, oftentimes they provide an answer that um, is more reassuring than what the generally accepted, you know, quote unquote, answers are.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's also important to remember that an archetype, it's often, it's an often used term, but Jung meant something much more than just, it's just a symbol it's 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 something i'm not going to go into the whole thing but it is much more than oh this is just a symbol and that's the end of the matter he he meant something much more so and although i can't prove that or disprove that i tell you what over the years i've learned to respect it yeah
2: i i tend to agree with you is that i think that too in the united states that we're again taking some of jung's ideas and then you know, making them a little bit more accessible for people is, you know, Joseph Campbell. And so there's a lot of Campbell in that these new religious movements, that kind of, the you know, kind of that, that idea of the hero's journey and all of that type of storytelling that gets affixed to these narratives.
1: Well, there's a lot of Campbell in Star Wars, isn't there? I mean, yeah. I mean,
2: oh, that's absolutely. Ex-
1: I mean, that's probably the most famous example of Campbell, actually.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely, and then the people worship that in in their own consumeristic yeah. way. Yeah,
1: in their mm-hmm. own way. Yeah, yeah. I think <laughs> yeah, I think that's true. Yeah,
2: yeah. yeah. And, and, that, and that can
1: be benevolent or malevolent as well, I
2: suppose. <laughs> <laughs> right. Good. And so I think when you talked about, talked about like UFOs and what's the state, one of the more interesting ones, and I think that's lesser talked about, um, is in America, the black esoteric religions. Um, And so just as much as Protestantism in the very white form has broken off, so too has black culture in America been exposed to these ideas and have developed their own specific uh, new religious movements and oftentimes cults. And specifically is the nation of Islam, especially under Louis Farrakhan, um, they are a UFO cult in many ways. They make, you know, church trips to Sedona. They Louis Farrakhan talks about, he's a contactee, and he talks about his personal experience with aliens.
0: Yeah, and the Nation of Islam, weirdly, were very... Um inspired well that they he's almost like a saintly presence with them with william cooper of all people um I was, right. yeah it's really bizarre that we had uh, mark Jacobson on uh recently who's he wrote, fantastic yeah. fantastic yeah. researcher oh yeah yeah it, it, his book about cooper is incredible um but he was in that book it, it talks at length about the nation of islam and william cooper and you just don't i just don't put those two things together in my my brain for some reason i just it just seems such a strange but now actually if, you, if you're saying that yeah the Farrakhan kind of era of nation of Islam is very uFO centric then yes. it, it makes a lot more sense, doesn't it, really?
2: It does make more sense. And it also makes, and that goes into like their economic programs under Elijah Muhammad. And that's where there's a lot of food involved in the nation of Islam. And it wanes a bit there. You know, and again, that happens with a group depending on who the leadership is. Because if you're, you know, if you're building your own cult, you get to impose your own preferences. I mean, I think you and I, we would like probably look at, you know, cake as a sacrament, right? I would, I would make people eat a lot of candy and chocolate and sweets.
1: When it comes to the same, when it comes to shawcraft think you and i are the same religion
0: <laughs> um so when you were doing the research for this book did you i mean one of the ones that really stuck out to me but they're yeah, looking at some of the more oddball i guess kind of um break off religions one of them was the true light beavers i thought that was an amazing uh, group but um what were some of your favourite, um, actually, let's talk about the True Light Beavers, but also what were some of the favourite kind of, uh, or you know, ones that really made you go, whoa, when you kind of, you know, came across them like strange little offshoot kind of cults or new religious movements?
2: Oh, I, you know, there are so many, the true light beavers are fantastic. And I'm, I'm, I'm thinking I can, I can talk about this is so that idea of a cult. And we were kind of, we've talked about a little bit is that people sometimes build their own cults and not don't even realize it. And especially in the United States. And it was a little bit in um, the UK, but like Findhorn, this idea of back to the land. Um, We're going to be entirely separatist and self sustainable. And it was. Common, you know, and very common. There were thousands of what, what's termed family cults in a lot of, in communes in the United States during that late sixties, especially into almost the eighties. So the seventies period, the True Light Beavers were one of those small in Woodstock, New York, and it was a family cult. It was essentially a group of fairly educated um people who decided to all live together back to the land uh communally raise their kids and what was fun about the true light beavers is that they kind of styled themselves i don't know how much they actually believed really anything but they really enjoyed styling themselves as one of the cults here's my funny asterisk i just spoke with her um there's a woman who reached out to me and i kind of vaguely know in my my food writing world who is, um, her named Sarah Carey, and she is essentially the second in command, kind of the executive director of all of Martha Stewart brands, of oh. all the Martha Stewart food stuff. She grew up at the True Light Beaver commune. Oh, wow. So it book. goes to, yeah, so it goes to and the True Light Beavers published a cookbook. And again, the, again, the marketing, a lot of these groups were publishing cookbooks because they had these food businesses, they needed revenue sources. And, and these were not published by like small or self printed. These are major you know, United States publishers who would publish these cookbooks by these groups. And the, the True Light Beavers published a cookbook. And so food was very central to them. But again, that influence, again, that's that outsized influence. Who would have thunk that a woman who was doing a lot of work has, you know, again, that strand has that influence. And, uh, and again, let me be very clear. The beavers were totally lovely and benign and not, you know, on, they were on that spectrum of kind of generally amusing and mm. fun versus really high control
0: coercive. And so what about um, for you? I mean, that was one that really stuck out for me. Yeah, because um, they have a ridiculous name yeah, as well. Yeah. So w- w- what sort of surprises, what sort of group surprised you when you were doing the research?
2: Um, it, I can tell you the biggest surprise I, and I had and it was able to through the research is um, I was able to talk to Dr. Christopher Stewart a number of times and the peace mission is just on its last legs and legitimately so. It came about in the 1920s in Harlem with a very, they were food centric um, and their food cultures morphed in different ways. Uh, Dr. Stewart was so kind and offered me access and he was sending me things from their archives and and so I was reading Father Divine's, his his speech, the newsletters and and that history. And then their food culture changed. But here, here's where I'm going with the biggest, to me, um, revelation and such a surprise is Father Divine died. He had a much younger second wife who changed the food culture from kind of stodgy, kind of Southern soul food culture to more health food um, as reflected in the 1960s. Um, the spiritual practice of the peace mission was very influenced by uh, tri- lost tribes, Pentecostalism, fundamentalism, um, that kind of modern I am movement. Uh, the other person who found inspiration that after Father Divine died, went to visit Mother Divine at their enclave at Woodmont. And that was Jim Jones. Jim Jones, projected himself and he went and talked to her a number of times that he felt that he was like the true spiritual son of father divine and was working very hard to convince mother divine to let him take over the peace mission. Um, and they, and the people's temple were following almost the very similar diet as the peace mission and doing similar work with food as the peace mission. and. There's some theories out there is that when Mother Divine rejected Jones is that that was one of the elements that started that downward cycle of his paranoia and searching for um, uh, an off site, you know, and out of the United States enclave and that it's considered actually one of the triggers. And that to me was one for me, the most eye opening, surprising element in doing all this research.
1: I was very surprised. Actually, I I, I didn't realize that so the Shakers were expecting Jesus to come back as a woman, which uh, that was a complete uh, that was a revelation for me. But it was uh, but uh, what surprised me, I think, most is how far back the idea was and how it's not really sort of caught people's imagination. You think that would be a very popular, you know, far more in our psyche today. So yeah.
2: the idea that um, God could be a woman, or that Jesus, no, Jesus is coming back G- as a specifically? Woman? Jesus
1: okay. as a woman, yeah, G- specifically um, Jesus.
2: I think there's a practical element to it why we don't see it as much. Uh, but again, I'll come I have two things to say to that. Is that in especially in the United States 20th century um a lot of these groups were very patriarchal and the other element about controlling the food was controlling the sex. Mm. Uh and so groups that could control who was sleeping with who again high control that's part of controlling the bodily autonomy uh, and if you're a group leader again build your own cult you're going to want to give yourself access to as much sex as you want and, and the people who tend to do that are men mm-hmm. and that's why a lot of the the downfall of many of these groups at least when they go get they get public and broken up is usually through um, really terrible you know sexual assault, Pedophilia. I mean, really awful practices. Women don't tend to do that, um, but there are again some women who have been cult leaders. Um, e- both historically, the Shakers were again led and founded by motherly, you know, so by women. Um, the there was an early one in the 1700s in the United States who was essentially um, there's some researchers think that, you know, you're the universal friend that sh- the born a woman may, may have been an early transgendered person. Um, the modern cyber cult with the who owned the vegan hut restaurant chain, uh, Madame Shanghai woman there was an so, it, so we're seeing more women as cult leaders but very few as kind of the the answer or the waiting messiah
1: yeah i mean there's something very um androgynous at the heart of that narrative of a, a male historical person coming back as a woman and remain, you know as still the messiah and there's like such a such a rich theme there and you think it would resonate a lot more with people so, I, was, I didn't know that. I had no idea. I mean, I'm very uh, familiar with the Quakers. I mean, the Quakers are, are, you know, a big deal here in England. So, um, mm-hmm. but the, the, the uh, Shakers, I've heard of them, but I really didn't know what they were all about. so, there we are. so And the, the Shakers
2: are kind of an offshoot of the
1: Quakers. Yeah, exactly. So, Shakers yeah, yeah. kind
2: of offshoot of the Quakers, yeah. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, again, anybody taking notes, is, is there's the new way of, I'd, I think that you're right, though, intuiting that maybe the next generation especially again as a reflection of the culture is maybe that's what we'll see with the next generation of new religious movements is seeing more of a female persona um as the the coming christ
1: yeah i think some we also with, with some of these randy gurus i think <laughs> they get themselves into positions like you say of, of authority and influence and they And they've never been in that position before, and they don't really know. And you know, it's like, oh, I've got this new car, and it's like goes at enormous speed, and and all the rest of it, and then they end up sort of crashing it horribly. There's a horrible disaster because they don't really know how to handle all that. It sort of spirals out of control. They're they're in this position of like, oh, you know, and then it sort of all goes there, and all goes horribly (laughs) wrong sometimes.
2: (laughs) Yeah. I live in a very working class area um, and I saw a McLaren at the grocery store yesterday and had that same exact thought of like, one, what a fool and his money. And then, two, you are going to crash that car because, again, <laughs> that much power in the hands of, you know, someone who doesn't understand how it works is, again, a deadly recipe. It also makes me think of again going back to some of the the earliest of these groups is like the oneida the oneida purported to be a sex cult um they were really about anti-marriage that's what they were and uh the founder they in they were actually proto-feminist and gave women the power to choose who they could sleep with so which again revolutionary in in the early 1800s but it started to backfire as the founder john Noyes, got older because you know if you're a woman and choosing to sleep and have sex with someone, you're going to choose, you know, the partner you wish. And if you're a very old man, you know, you may not get chosen so often. And so he started to institute more and more rules. Um, and it kind of got higher control, especially with the sex stuff and very much controlling, you know, how many children could be born. And so I'm going to statistically of the 200 some kids who were born during that Oneida commune period, 89 were fathered by noise because he instituted a rule for the women before you could sleep with any, uh, with anyone you wanted, you had to sleep with him.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'd, I'd like to know a lot more about them. My, my... Very basic understanding is it's that it's got something to male continence at the heart of well, the, their worldview.
2: Yeah, world view. yeah a, a lot of it too it was about um, that they were perfectionists as their religious core belief, which is a, a again a teeny tiny strain of interpreting um, biblical stuff. The idea that if Christ died for your sins, we're perfect. We're done. All of this, like asking forgiveness or worrying about waiting for the redeemer, or you know that we're slugs needing to be, you know, always forgiven. No, we're we're perfect, um, and so being perfect means, you know, you get to rewrite all the rules, uh, and that's what noise was doing. And so part of that was about sex should be for pleasure. Sex isn't always about procreation. Sex is something invented by God for man, and you can enjoy it. But they also um, were very practical in lots of sex can also equal lots of babies and that they didn't want to work that hard or take care of that many babies. And again, it's a strain on the resources of the group. And so they, they practice male continence, which again is essentially to use the more crudest term, pulling out and, you know, ejaculating outside of the vagina. So as a way to, of birth
1: control. The gentleman's method, as we refer hmm. it. Yeah. The river method, I
0: think they call it. Is there's it? a
1: bit of that male consonants, not exactly like that, but there's some in Mormonism, isn't there? There's sort of, there's kind of that, that there's something like that.
2: There is. There's also an American joke. This is, oh, I'm going to work blue again. It's a little dark. <laughs> um, there's a term you'll hear called a Mormon virgin. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that. Yeah, yeah. Oh, this is very crude. Um, um, so the term mormon virgin usually refers to uh sexual practices outside of any that would lead to impregnation if you, you can oh, get I see my it, meaning yes.
1: yeah so like a, you know like elizabeth the first she was a virgin in in everything that
2: you know. she yes
1: yeah so. it, like she, yeah. <laughs> so, yeah i must say i mean uh, i give the mormons their view uh, Jews they did the uh, you know they went to sort like they were cast out to Salt lake city and they they turned literally a wilderness into you know, a, a a thriving community, which is a bit of a miracle in its own right. So I suppose I give them that respect. I have met, I have I've met some Mormons, and they did come and i did i was curious i wasn't interested in being a mormon in any way shape or form but i'm, I'm like you i'm very interested in people's ideas and worldviews and different perspectives and um they, so they did make the point of coming around and having a ch- chat about it or but i remember i remember that one of them was saying oh well i are fast for you and i remember saying that at the time well why are you doing that exactly and um they they simply just said oh well that's something they do in the bible so we're doing it and they seem to be you know, content with that explanation. But again, that's the sort of food, the, the fasting and the food, you know.
2: Yeah, again. absolutely. And it, it's, I have a terrible habit. Um, if the, the Mormons knock on the door, the boys, and they're usually boys, mm-hmm. um, and always very young, and I invite them in with for a glass of water um, and it just as a, a general civility and ask if they need to use the restroom. And then I always ask them if they, they what they know, like you're saying about the history of the group and their practices. And I always ask them if they'd like to know more about the history. And I usually, and, and I, I'll sit them down and we have a great conversation. They're very pleased because they're doing their mission, right? They, they're, you know, in, in me telling them their history, they're telling me what they think their history is. Um, and I'm also doing the neighbors a service by preventing you know, that kind con- the door knocking. But it's always, again, to your point, is a lot of times this happens with these newer religious groups, is the believers don't know their own history. They don't always know the reasons they're doing certain things. And that goes to the smoothing down and the mainstreaming of some of these new religious movements
1: as they grow. Mm. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah. I don't think they were really I got the impression they weren't very. Really, they weren't very really interested. They were just like doing their duty and that's what they were ex- expected of them. I'm sure that's I'm sure there's other ones who have more of an authentic experience. Um mm-hmm. but um but yeah, I just got the impression that I'm supposed to be doing this so I'm doing it and <laughs> then when I've done it then I can just get on with the rest of my life basically. <laughs> like yeah. doing national very service. Like national service. It was it's it very much like that.
2: What I think is really interesting about that, though, is so Mormon food culture is very distinct and it grew in two different ways. One is because as you were talking about, about kind of getting burned out of all these cities doing this, you know, thousand plus mile trek um, in the wilderness is you needed to have a fairly organized food system. I mean, starvation is, is real. Um, I mean, 20th century, 21st century, we tend to forget that refrigeration, food preservation, processing is a relatively new thing. And so they have a a very robust food preservation culture. Uh, The women are in charge of that food preservation and in food. If you're canning your own potatoes, um, you've got a lifespan. You've got it. They don't last forever. You've got you're supposed to use them within a year or so. Mormons are also directed to keep at least one year food supply because they are apocalyptic. Uh, But so you need to rotate that food supply. Okay, so you're using a lot of canned food all the time in your cooking. And so that's where you get a lot of these casseroles, baked, all these things thrown together. That's thing one that led to distinct Mormon culture. The other thing is the modern, is the missionaries. So they'd send the kids to Peru I'd send them to England and the kids would bring home, this was my favorite dish. I really like this. And that got incorporated into modern um, LDS cooking. And so it's, but again, then tamped down for very American um, ingredients and sources. So you see these bizarre versions of like a very white people, very bland empanada, you know, a very bland kind of stir fry. And I think that's really fascinating because again, that's that's the us we just we cherry pick everything and we fuse it all together and make something new
1: yeah yeah like you say it's a it's a it's a fusion if it's 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 something eaten and it's a syncretic if it's religious and there's a there's a common thread there isn't there
2: There, there's always a common thread i think i think
1: anyways oh yeah totally a golden thread
0: (laughs) (laughs) anyway yeah so Thanks so much. I think we could. This is one of these That's subjects. Gone very it, quickly,
1: Ken. That, that, that seems to have gone very quickly. It has. We, it? <laughs> I, 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 I've, I've, I didn't ever get a chance to talk about the mystery cults and the feasting at the end of the mystery cult, but never mind. Never <laughs> mind about that. Well, wow, we, can always, we can always have Christina back on the show. There we go. Well,
2: right. Right. I, was, I'm, I love talking about this stuff and <laughs> I love talking about all the work we do at Feral House and, and where we're going. So I'd, I'm i happy to come back and we can bore people with all of our. Um, rabbit holing on um, yeah. the strange convergences of food and culture and religion and conspiracy
0: so when does the book actually because of the version i've got a so pre-release version so um, when does it actually come out
2: and so it's out in the united states just came out on september 26th and it'll be out in europe um in, by october 26th or so so oh, so soon. um So folks can pre-order it if you're in Europe. Um, And Feral House, uh, people ask all the time, we are distributed worldwide. Mm -hmm. If your local bookstore doesn't carry it, they can order it for you, as well as all the online retailers. And, of course, if you're in London, go visit our friend at Treadwills.
0: Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. Christina. Mm. Yeah, um, uh, and what what other kind of Feral House books are coming out um, next?
2: Oh, so if folks remember with Feral House, we have a couple different lines of like kind of areas of interest. So obviously cultsy and conspiracy, we love that stuff, but we also love um, kind of dark corners of pop culture as well as music and rock and roll. So Just Out is um, a memoir by great musician and writer from Whipping Boy, Oxbow, Bunnell, Eugene Robinson. That's just Mm -hmm. out now. I mean, they just finished a big tour of, of Europe and starting the US leg of their tour. Um, and then coming out soon is a book on the history like of murder ballots. Mm-hmm. So that'll be out mm-hmm. in November in the United States, December in Europe, and then coming in january is one we've been working on that I'm, i i even referenced some of the guy's research as we we're just talking is called lemuria the true history of a fake place oh, wow. and that'll wow. be out in january that
0: sounds
1: like our cup well, that sounds like our cup yeah. of tea yeah that's that's the, that's the <laughs> I'm that sounds forward to that. like our cup of tea i think we should do, yeah. we should set our compass for that one
0: actually. yeah definitely
2: yeah we'll <laughs> definitely send you a copy of that i okay. think you guys will enjoy it
0: excellent brilliant well thank you so much for coming and uh, hopefully we'll speak again soon and uh yeah, thanks. Yeah, thank you so much. Thank you so
2: much for the opportunity.
0: And we are back. That was fantastic. It went too quickly.
1: Yeah, yeah. Like I said, there's a lot of things I would like to do. I think. I think actually. I think from the book itself, maybe the the the. the I think. Actually, doing the recipes and and eating them, mm. I think I I would highly recommend that. You know, it's the, you know, there's a real exper there's an experience which is beyond paper.
0: It's an initiatory experience, almost, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you'd
1: probably be quite fat well, if you did all of them. <laughs> but, anyways, but, uh, yeah, but you could take your morning one go, I suppose. But uh, you could work your way through it. I like books which actually invite you to action. I mean, you know, they go off the page and you, they give you an experience, an actual experience. So yeah. you, can, you can come away with that and then contemplate the. Thoughts and feelings uh, the ideologies behind them and not necessarily have to accept them of course in any way yeah. Is it, which might even be better yeah i
0: felt found christina was a very good you know enthusiastic
1: and then yeah. very detailed speakers so yeah
0: yeah excellent excellent anyway um don't forget to follow us on social media all the usual at sitting now at sitting now official on tiktok although i need to actually start posting there i haven't been posting there for a while i just it's a weird app. I don't get it. I'm old. Anyway, um but yes, we will be back. Yeah, I'll say that again. We will be back next week. Um and we will see you then. Bye-bye.